0: You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace.
1: Hi, welcome. Uh, I'm George Perkovich. I'm uh, uh, Vice President for Studies here at the Endowment. And it's great to welcome you all here. This is a um, potentially dry topic that is not likely to make it on to... Uh, CNN, and all the debate shows, and MSNBC. Uh, I doubt the Republican candidates in their debates are going to be asked about the future of the nuclear suppliers group. (laughs) I actually hope they're not going to be. Um, But it's really, really important. And uh, those of you who are here, uh, I imagine, know why uh, it's important. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But Recognizing the importance of the nuclear suppliers group gets you about 10% of the of the way. I think identifying what are the key challenges, the emerging challenges, that face uh, the suppliers group as a collective, but each of the participating states, is actually uh, fairly complicated. And then going beyond the identification, actually, and the definition of the problems, to thinking through... Where might lie uh, uh, answers that can lead to progress, which would also be feasible and which also could uh, uh, help uh, uh, where you can imagine uh, the the, the states uh, internally aligning around them. That's actually very difficult as well. And so the report that that, uh, we're releasing here today and that Mark's going to be talking about, I found... Um, to be one of those relatively rare uh, publications or pieces of work that really defines uh, an important problem and an important challenge at a given time and does it with enough detail that the people who are really involved can appreciate it. They can recognize the complexity that they're dealing with in their, in their, in their work lives, see it in a report, um, but it's but it's but it's framed in a way that you can follow it and see the logic, uh, and then it offers uh, some some ways forward. So it's a it's a report that I'm extremely proud uh, to be uh, associated with. Um, I'm I, I'm always proud to be associated with with Mark, but I, I say this is a, a really important um, piece of work. Uh, he, he, he may be planning to, to say this, um, but we also want to thank uh, the government of the Netherlands uh, without whose support uh, it wouldn't have been uh, possible. Uh, we were encouraged and facilitated in doing this work uh, by them and in part because uh, they and their, their representative were the chair uh, this year. And so it was in the preparation for that chairmanship uh, that you know they were talking with. Uh, with Mark and with us about, well, what do you think the big issues are that we ought to be addressing and working on uh, coming forward? And so that led to, uh, ultimately, to this um, report. I don't want to be taking more of what Mark would uh, say to you, so I'll get out of the way uh, and turn it over to Mark. But again, thank you all for coming and urge you to Um, to read. I urge you to read all the things that we do, but but this one I I really, really mean is is a really high quality uh, piece of work. So, thank you.
2: Well, thank you very much, George, for your your flattering introduction, and good afternoon. Um, As George mentioned, we were asked by the Foreign Ministry of the Netherlands to uh, accompany them as they started and prepared for their assuming the rotating chairmanship of the NSG, which happened in um, in June this year. Um, last November, Pete de Klerk, who was the DCM in the Dutch mission in New York, um, asked me to essentially put together a workshop for the participating governments of the NSG to drill into some pressing issues that are emerging as the nuclear trade regime evolves um, in an effort uh, to do a number of things, but primary of the things it was trying to do was to focus the attention of 46 participating governments in the NSG on issues which are very grave indeed, but are very difficult to, to grasp onto if you are in the group, the NSG, as many of you probably know, um, is primarily concerned with the day-to-day issues of controlling nuclear trade, and 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 the, the the members of the group very rarely think in a long-term trajectory about the future of the regime. Um, the The scope of the of the NSG's uh, uh, organization, the way it works, also discourage the membership and especially the chairman from looking at things in a long-term view because the rotating chairmanship terminates before, in fact, the next annual plenary meeting of the NSG. So in June, the Netherlands assumed the chairmanship for one year and will relinquish that chairmanship at a meeting which will be held in Seattle in the United States um, next uh, spring. So the chair is not even in the position to continue his work for more than, than a year. So it's very, very difficult for the chairman to keep the momentum moving on, it, on, on long-term issues. It, it's very difficult for them to do that. And that was really the reason why the Netherlands uh, asked us to do this. We put together a meeting for the group. We held it in Brussels in May. Um, The May meeting was a closed meeting. We had uh, 30 of the 46 participating governments at the meeting. Um, That was not an easy task, because just weeks before, we had the Fukushima accident. And for many of these governments, the people who were involved in the nuclear trade regime um, and in the NSG were already deeply involved in managing the aftermath of that accident. The month after my meeting, there was a ministerial meeting in Vienna where the same personalities were going to Vienna for that meeting. So, you know, it was touch and go, but we managed to get 30 of the 46 members at the meeting, and that we considered to be, you know, successful given the the conditions we were operating in. The meeting, as I said, was a closed meeting. We had an agenda uh, to cover what became sections of the report. The, the, The Netherlands asked me to do the meeting. And then we also agreed that after the meeting, I would write a report basically um, structured around the architecture of the seminar and bringing it forward and including in the report a compendium of suggestions, advice, um, proposals that emerged during the discussion and in In the end, when we compiled it all, we had somewhere between 60 and 70 uh, suggestions that were brought forth by people participating in the meeting. Uh, The meeting was a closed meeting. Uh, When I wrote the report, I uh, relied to a great extent on contributions uh, and interventions made by people attending the meeting, but they were not identified uh, in any way. Um, And uh, I compiled the report this summer, and we prepared it for publication, and that's why we're here with you this afternoon. Um, so I'm going to get into the material uh, covered by the report. Some of it is retrospective. Um, we'll go over that very briefly for the benefit of anyone who who doesn't know that, and then we'll look at what happened in the NSG over the last decade uh, a little more in a little more detail, and then we'll talk about the challenges that the group is facing. There we go. Okay, so, you know, in 1971, the NPT is a reality, and um, as many of you know, it, it, it's Article Three, set up um, conditions under which um, nuclear activities would trigger safeguards um, in 1971, an informal committee, the Zanger Committee, was set up, in fact, to interpret what's in Article 3 in that regard. And, and it, as you know, um, stipulated that source material, uranium thorium, um, as defined by the IA statute, would be subject to safeguards. but also equipment or material, Especially designed or prepared EDP for processing special nuclear material. You know, I I underline that because when we get into the future of the industry, this is you're going to see that this that EDP uh, provision will be significant. Seventy four India tested. Seven countries, major suppliers, reacted by this to this by setting up. A, the so-called London Club, uh, you know, an organization which, body which eventually became the NSG. A few years later, they uh, arranged and agreed upon a number of guidelines, which were published as Insert Two Fifty Four. Uh, that was it. Uh, the NSG never met again until 1991. During this period of time, you know, the, we we went through an expansion of the membership, uh, and then a significant proliferation accident. Triggered the reconvening of the NSG in 1991, uh, namely the Iraqi nuclear program, which exposed the extent to which a member state of the NPT had violated it um, by spending billions of dollars on a clandestine nuclear program, which involved extensive international procurement. So in 92, um, the NSG revised its guidelines and came up with a dual-use list, which was published as Part Two of Insert 254. Then they went beyond that the year after, uh, in 1993, in establishing a requirement for full scope safeguards as a condition of supply for uh, states which were non-nuclear weapon states. So that was the situation uh, 1978, 79, then the 80s. um, And then um, the NSG revises its guidelines, establishes extra controls. And we're at the point where enter the Khan network, uh, changes in the nuclear trade regime, um, the globalization of the regime, changes uh, in the international diplomacy of nuclear energy. We'll go through these these issues here. Um, basically, um, the area of emerging networks, that's, that's clear. Um, the Khan network w- was exposed uh, by 2003, and it was then apparent that using uh, a number of associates located in 30 or more countries worldwide, that they were organizing procurement for a number of nuclear, uh, clandestine nuclear programs. Um, this was, um, you know, a shock to the system, The NSG had to respond to that, and it has been preparing a response. It's been acting. Um, The second element here is developments that took place among the NSG states themselves, the development of what uh, Michael Crapon um, has called uh, the emergence of opportunistic supply policies by member states in the NSG. Um, This... uh, was another uh, shock. Um, We began this uh, experience in the late 90s when the Russians decided to export uh, reactors to India on the basis of an agreement which preceded the full-scope safeguards provision in which the Russians claimed uh, this transaction was grandfathered by the agreement in 1998 Uh, Led by the United States, NSG members um, requested from Russia demonstration bona fides showing that, in fact, that was the case, that that transaction was grandfathered. The Russians didn't do that. Uh, The transaction went ahead uh, without ado. Then in in, uh, 2004, the Russians uh, raised the ante by uh, concluding an agreement to export fuel for uh, additional reactors that were uh, under safeguards in India, again, uh, against, uh, against the, the objections of the United States. That was in 2004. Uh, there were objections, and the Russians, uh, perhaps intimidated by the, the strength of that response, then put that transaction on the shelf. But in 2005, as you're aware, the, the United States uh, and India announced uh, its budding nuclear trade agreement. And on the strength of that in 2006, the year thereafter, the Russians then relaunched that initiative, and the fuel export, worth somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to $800 million, went forward without any real objections. Um, the third item on the list here is globalization of the nuclear trade environment. Um, that may be self-apparent uh, to many of you here, but basically what happened was you're seeing you know, an explosion in, in in the kinds of nuclear commerce that is are taking place in the world. You know, in the past, uh, we're looking at, uh, until, until this time, until about the last decade, we're looking primarily at point-to-point transactions involving a supplier and a recipient of equipment, which either was on the list or off of it. But what happened in the last 10 years in reaction to the NSG's response to the Iraqi crisis is – inventive supply strategies involving preformed equipment, machine tools to make equipment, off-spec items which were just under the threshold of the lists. Um, The NSG in 2004 then attacked that issue by uh, promulgating a catch-all rule, which um, was designed to catch and, uh, and, and stop transactions that were Uh, not specifically um, forbidden uh, under the lists. Um, In addition, we've seen uh, other things that have happened, a proliferation of electronic commerce, um, technology transfer through the Internet, um, an explosion of countries that are involved in the nuclear trade regime. Um, So this is a globalization issue. This is clearly a challenge. This is what we've seen in the last decade. The last point here. Uh, which I'll mention, is a rise in international nuclear equity issues. Basically, from the outset, NSG was always subject to uh, attack from outsiders that it was a cartel, that it was an organization bent on denying trade and preserving the rights of technology holders um, in defiance of economic development of non-aligned and developing countries. Um, What we've seen in the last decade is is a rise of – Equity issues among the developing countries. The Non-Aligned Movement has come to the fore. They established a chapter in Vienna, uh, which has become very active. It has been, if you will, instrumentalized uh, to a certain extent by Iran in its effort to deflect uh, attention to uh, the investigation of its nuclear activities by the IAEA since two thousand and three. Um, so you know this has come to the fore. We've also seen. As that movement moved on, uh, we had um, a diplomatic disconnect uh, in this area between the Bush administration, um, which in this area was not very committed to any multilateral diplomacy, and then this administration's uh, rather rough relationship uh, with the IEA, uh, with NPT members who uh, were very unhappy that, in their view, the Bush administration had really abjured um, multilateral diplomacy in the nuclear area, and, and that led to a raising of tension. So now we're going to move on into the the nitty-gritty of the problems that we're facing today. I'm going to start by talking about Pakistan and China, not because it's necessarily the the biggest and most a threatening issue of uh, facing the group, but because it's the issue that the the, the NSG is going to have to solve first. Um, the background of this is fairly straightforward. The, you know, there was a Sino-Pakistan nuclear cooperation agreement. Um, Pakistan participated in that program, uh, both in the military area and in the civilian area. China joined the NSG in 2004 um, after swearing off further cooperation with Pakistan's weapons program. Uh, as I said, 2005, the Indian deal was announced. And in 2006, what we see right after that is, is a, you know, a, a flurry of very intense Sino-Pakistan nuclear trade diplomacy aimed at the, uh, a deal that would give Pakistan additional reactors from China supplied under that previous agreement. Um, 2008, China joined the NSG in lifting trade sanctions against India. At the same time, the watchword of the Chinese during this whole period was to have an agreement uh, providing the lifting of sanctions, which would be non-discriminatory, suggesting to most people that at some point in time, China is going to be stepping into the breach on behalf of Pakistan. And indeed, in 2010, we were able to confirm that China – Plans to export reactors to Pakistan um, under its previous agreement. In 2004, when China joined the NSG, the the U.S. and a few other countries requested from China information about what China intended to do in, in pursuing nuclear cooperation with Pakistan under that under that agreement, and. Um, the, the the list of items that the PAC, that China provided did not include the supply of additional power reactors. Um, so, we're in two thousand and ten, a year ago, um, at the NSG meeting that was held in New Zealand, the annual meeting, and the United States took a very strong position against the grandfathering of those reactors, uh, the reactor sale from China to Pakistan. Um, China didn't really engage in there. They, they, they were asked about the commerce. The Chinese said, you can be assured that we will uphold our commitments and that nothing we will do will violate our obligations uh, under the NPT or our voluntary commitments under the NSG. Um, last fall, however, the Chinese then informed the membership that it intended to grandfather that export. The matter was raised during the annual NSG meeting this spring, and uh, they were asked again to comment, and the Chinese uh, told the group that in the past, when China was in the process of negotiating an additional protocol with uh, the IAEA, it included these reactor exports on its expanded declaration to the agency. Um, that's interesting because um, that puts the NSG in a in a in a difficult position because under the terms of the additional protocol, the the IEA is not in the position to to confirm confidential information to outsiders that's provided by a member state in the process of implementing the protocol. So so we don't really have any bona fides from China at this point and and the NSG members requested the Chinese during the course of this year to provide additional information. And that's where we are right now. We have a a situation where China is intending to supply. And uh, in my understanding, in Pakistan, earlier this year, I, I had meetings with Pakistani officials who spelled out to me very clearly that this export is going ahead. The... Pakistan industry and government are preparing for the export. Um, As we speak, uh, some construction work and excavation pouring of concrete is ongoing for the first of the units. In China, I was informed uh, by uh, heavy equipment manufacturers that the the manufacturer of the heavy equipment for these reactors is now underway. The China issue uh, indirectly raises a broader issue in the NPT or in the NSG, namely the, the group's relationship to the NPT. Um, as, I've, as I've said, um, when the NSG was born, it was born um, after the Indian test at the in the interest of a number of supplier states who believed very strongly that the Uh, NPT alone would not suffice to uh, deter the spread of nuclear weapons. And so what we've seen over time is is a number of additional requirements beyond the NPT, which the NSG has included in its guidelines, if you will, uh, increasing or deepening the the bifurcation between the the NPT and the NSG. and one of those additional requirements was, you know, the commitment that was made of the group in beginning in 1993 to require full-scope safeguards as a condition of supply. In 1995, when the NPT was extended indefinitely, that condition was hardwired into the NPT, if you will. So it set up a conundrum whereby, on the one hand, the NSG is setting forth a condition of trade which was not required by the NPT, namely, FSS, but then two years later, in, in 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 the effort to extend the treaty, double backed and put essentially wrote that requirement, that commitment into the NPT process. So they set up, if you will, kind of a double bind for the NPT and moving forward. Uh, when the NSG agreed to lift sanctions against India. The parties that wanted to do this asserted that it would be a singular exception. Uh, at the same time, the NSG's membership knows that, as I explained, since the, since the genesis of the group, its mission goes beyond the NPT, and it, uh, it, it aims to capture suppliers that are not in the, not in the treaty, Today in today's world where we've got nuclear weapon armed states which are not part of the treaty, and which have the full gamut of nuclear technology to sell, um, the NSG parties argue that they have to relook at this commitment and they have to, if possible, adjust it to to meet today's conditions. Um, unfortunately, that brings the group into conflict with the NPT and, and there's where we are. So in this process of the discussion, um, it was, uh, an agreement that was made by the NSG to go beyond the, the treaty, which led to the conditions that China must fulfill. Um, the fact that Pakistan is not an NPT state is the crux here. Um, at the same time, moving further, the United States, in a sense, escalated the urgency of this issue by putting on the agenda of the group uh, its advocacy of Indian membership in the group. Um, India, you know, its, its sanctions were lifted, but it, India was still outside of, the, outside of the NSG. The United States now advocates India joining the group, and what we're seeing is the beginning of a discussion about that membership, which as I indicated um, at the behest of the Netherlands government and its chairmanship, we got into a discussion of future membership of, in the group. Um, and, and what we did, we, we had a very lively discussion about how that might be conceived. Uh, at the time we were meeting in Brussels in May... Uh, the United States State Department was drafting a memo, um, a thought paper, if you will, on possible future criteria for membership. Uh, this paper was not completed. It was not ready when we were meeting, but it did uh, – it, it was finished. Uh, the drafting was finished a few weeks later, and it was discussed during the NSG meeting in Nordvike in the Netherlands in, in, uh, in June. Up until now uh, because of the 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 delicate nature of this issue the nsG has considered uh, membership not in terms of criteria but in terms of factors which could be considered and uh, and now we're moving into a discussion as to whether that would that, that approach would be sustainable into the future during the meeting uh, in uh, to support the discussion we had about membership in possible criteria, in consideration of the China-Pakistan dilemma that I've outlined here. Uh, to try to bind those issues together, my colleagues George Perkovich and Tony Dalton and I um, drafted a, a, a thought paper of our own, which we put forth at the meeting. Paper is, by the way, available here for um, all of you to read. And what we basically came up with was a, a a thought paper that described a criteria, criteria-based approach to setting up um, nuclear cooperation with Pakistan, which would involve a decision by China to suspend its, uh, its n- nuclear cooperation plan with, a, with Pakistan for long enough to negotiate terms for an exception for this trade um, during this period, uh, the other members in the group could uh, you know interact and find ways to incentivize China to do that. Um, one of the uh, pieces of information in the background here is is that the Fukushima accident had happened, and the Chinese had announced immediately after the accident that they were going to have you know, a review of their entire nuclear program and how to move forward after after Fukushima. And one of the things that we we were able to f- learn is that it would appear that in the process of that review, China will take a decision and announce that decision um, soon, probably within the next three to four months. And part of the uh, part of the results of that review will be a decision by China not to build any of the older reactors, including um, the design uh, of the reactor, which is. Um, Intended to be built and exported to Pakistan, so this would be an opportunity for China to kind of rebalance its nuclear export plans, including those for Pakistan, and to put this together in a package which could solve some pressing problems. Um, what would what would this do? What What are the potential benefits of doing this? And you know, one of them would clearly be to. Uh, to provide a process to integrate uh, non NPT parties, not only uh, Pakistan, of course but uh, but India uh, India and Israel, and perhaps others in the future, if it were to come to pass into the uh, nuclear uh, trade regime and it would provide an avenue to provide an avenue to get China 's trade with Pakistan into an NSG process which would be acceptable to the consensus. Um, Pakistan would have to make very firm commitments in a lot of areas uh, to be able to go forward on this basis. There would be, you know, a, a list, a laundry list uh, that would be up to the members to agree to, which would be the basis on which Pakistan would do this. But it would assure, compared to the situation we're in right now, that any exports to Pakistan from China would take place under conditions which would further sustainability of that program and its security. Uh, one of the problems with the Indian deal, which was pointed out again and again, was, was that, that that deal did not, in the eyes of many, provide any real nonproliferation benefits. And that the absence of those benefits led to uh, the strong opposition to that uh, agreement and by m- many, many parties. Um, Doing, doing this might be a way to, in a way, redress the balance, particularly if, in parallel with this, um, the United States intended to go further with a discussion of membership of India. So there might be a way of recouping some of the deficits that, uh, that were in the original agreement with India. Now, we weren't naive, and we realized that, in addition, there were potential drawbacks here uh, in going this route. One of them clearly is the prospect that doing this would aggravate the relationship between the NSG and the non-nuclear weapon states and the NPT, as i explained, particularly under conditions where um, equity issues in international trade in the nuclear area have come to the fore. And and the other uh, potential drawback would be the calculus that the cost-benefit ratio of, of such a process would be unfavorable because we would be trying to Stop or inhibit a a fairly circumscribed amount of nuclear trade through a negotiation, which might turn out to be quite complex and 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 lengthy. Um, So we got into a discussion of this paper, and and um, you know when you read if you take a copy of the report, which is here, will be available to you after the meeting, you and you'll be able to to see how the discussion proceeded. Um, The membership issue is is very very important because. Again, the nuclear trade regime is, is changing. Um, we're anticipating more nuclear energy. There, there, there is, if you will, a trickle-down effect uh, through economic development. In many countries that want to have it. nuclear power, they're anticipating uh, establishing some capability uh, in the production of nuclear goods, uh, both nuclear fuel and in uh, nuclear equipment. Um, at the very least to service nuclear energy programs that they intended intended to set up. Um, in addition, of the parties that may, may join the NPT or, or express strong interest in doing so are a number of countries which are members of organizations which aspire to become customs unions in the next 10 to 15 years. This is important because on the basis of uh, the EU's status as a customs union, all 27 members of the EU are members of the NSG, whether they have nuclear equipment-making capabilities or not. Um, this has raised some equity issues, in fact, in, uh, in the developing world where developing member states in, at the IEA um, feel that they will have difficulty becoming members of the NSG or getting access to to that that body, while there are eu members that are uh, have no nuclear infrastructure a few of them in fact are are politically anti-nuclear which are in the group and, and and there are tensions in this area so you know we are anticipating in the next 15 years or so an expansion of potential members in this group and because the nsg from the beginning has made all of its decisions on the basis of consensus the question comes to the fore whether that consensus principle is sustainable. Um, this is not a new discussion in the group. Uh, there was an outreach um, um, seminar that the that the NSG carried out in 1997, which I attended in Vienna, um, where a number of ideas were put forth. Uh, what we were uh, informed in, in during the seminar in Brussels that, that Carnegie held is that in you know, to my surprise, um, since then, there's been very little discussion of the future of the membership of the organization. It's almost as if they're they're anticipating a, you know, a, a ticking time bomb where in 15 years there's going to be a number of countries that are going to be knocking at the door. And over the last 10 or so, the membership has done very little, if anything, in a structured way to anticipate um, that change. Um in our meeting, there was a discussion of this. You know, some people talked about setting up a two-tier membership structure where there would be a, a core group of countries that were decision makers, and there would be another group that would be committed to you know, implementing the guidelines and adhering to them. But you know, this left um, a very uh, bad taste in the mouths of many of the people at the meeting. They felt that going that route would set up a, you know, an extremely discriminatory uh, situation. And the f- strong feeling of most of the people in participating in the seminar was was that if if a country is adhering to the guidelines it should have the rights to uh, to determine the guidelines that that it's adhering to so you know this is still a problem um, Another aspect here having to do with the membership and the decision making of the group is is the fact that in addition to being consensus oriented it's also voluntary um There has been a discussion about uh, establishing a secretariat instead of a point of contact, which is an informal um, uh, setup uh, where the Japanese mission at the IEA serves as a, as a essentially an informal distributor of information and a facilitator for meetings. Um, Most of the board, uh, most of the members in the in the in the group at the seminar, felt that they didn't want to go that route. Um, they want. They felt most comfortable with it being voluntary, regardless of the fact that the voluntary nature uh, leaves the group uh, hostage to uh, crises when, as uh, in the case of China or in Russia, it would appear that the guidelines are being violated. Um, the other things we discussed um, at the meeting, we can go through these one by one. Um, we talked about the adjustment that the group will have to make to globalization of nuclear trade. One of those, one of those adjustments is now beginning to be underway. A, a review of the control list, which will take place over a period of three to five years. Uh, they're hoping to complete it in three years. And this basically takes both the trigger list items, the, the nuclear uh, list from 1978 is amended, plus the trigger list, Part Two, and they go through the list and try to dis- decide, you know, what they're going to add and subtract to the list, how they're going to craft it. Um, there is a discussion of the possibility that instead of having a dual-use list and, a, and a, uh, a nuclear use list, there may be a single list. Um, this is an option. Um, one of the things that Looks to some people in the group as inevitable or highly likely is that this EDP condition that I mentioned before, uh, especially designed or prepared uh, for production of nuclear material, that this condition as a as a consideration for export licensing under the um, the NSG list will probably be dropped, uh, and that uh, then causes heartburn. In the Zanger committee, because the Zanger committee, as I mentioned in 1971, was set up to interpret um, Article 3 uh, in, along the lines of EDP. So, if the NSG isn't going to use that as a criteria, then it you know it sets up a you know a big question mark about what the future of the Zanger committee will be, and the NSG will have to deal with that question. Um, there there is in this discussion. Uh, it 's uh, here, which primarily is happening in at the expert group level of very wonky um, nuclear trade technologists getting together and deciding you know how many you know milli, milligrams or micrometers or you know what kind of dimensioning of of components and technical specifications for lists um, that 's the heart of the work involved in this revision. But behind this discussion is a far more philosophical issue which the group will have to address, and that's the question whether they want to move forward in a a regime where nuclear trade is becoming more complex and where the volume of nuclear trade will expand. If they want to move forward by adding to the lists, or instead do they want to take the approach, let's leave the lists more or less where they are and concentrate on uh, using the catch-all clause to interdict trade which is off the list. Because when they look into their their intelligence files, they see that one of the major developments in the nuclear trade regime is that more and more proliferators are turning away from the lists and are trying to procure for their programs by buying non-listed goods. So... This is an issue of a philosophical nature that the the regime is going to have to address. And they're having to address it because, in part, they're dealing with major challenges of of intangible technology transfer, trade activity of trade brokers, and a greater use of transiting in international nuclear trade. Um, We had, during the second day of the two-day meeting in Brussels, we had a, a considerable discussion about the relationship of the NSG with other multilateral export control arrangements. And and this was uh, really a revelation in a way because we found out that the NSG's pre- participating governments had not systematically looked at this as a possible, fruitful way to move forward. Um, but when we we looked at it, we had people from participating governments who were there who were also serving their governments in these other regimes, Australia Group, um, Wassenaar, and the MTCR, we compiled a list of things that were potential uh, areas of mutual uh, collaboration, and we found that all of these regimes have the following characteristics, uh, including the NSG. So membership criteria, control list reviews, catch-alls, outreaches, um, concern about these new uh, trade developments, a lack of enforcement mechanism, and a commitment to consensus decision-making, all of these aspects are, are common to these regimes, and, and we suggested that it would be very worthwhile indeed for NSG to visit these regimes to cooperate with them, collaborate, and find uh, possible synergies in moving forward in solving problems. And and we found uh, the, during the discussion, participants suggested that m- moving in this direction, particularly for smaller countries without a lot of, um, of nuclear expertise and a lot of manpower, that you know sharing this experience would permit them to optimize you know their personnel allocation in the future. Uh, in collaborating with the others, it would uh, provide a check against bureaucratic mission creep. There were examples given where. You know, some export control regimes were moving into areas that were already being covered by others, and you know, because they didn't know that, they were you know doubling the work and wasting resources. Um, a major area that we singled out for possible collaboration is in the sharing of good practices. Um, this doesn't happen very much in this in this area. There's a lot of stro- stovepiping. Um, most of the people that serve the governments in in these regimes are 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 techies that are specialized in you know, either nuclear or missile tech or bio, and they don't really share information with each other in any real significant way. Um, and then finally, these areas, uh, outreach, management of the lists, the definition of compliance, a, a significant uh, issue here, uh, catch-all implementation, uh, cooperation areas of data security, security consensus formation, transparency and Significantly, and I'll mention that again, peer reviews, these are all areas where these regimes can work together. Uh, one uh, group in particular uh, was singled out for attention. Just before we met in Brussels, the UN Security Council passed a resolution in 1977 giving the 1540 Committee a 10-year mandate to continue its work and specifically uh, to intensify activities with the other export control bodies in the world, uh, including the NSG. Um, so far, uh, there's been very little contact be- between the NSG and the 1540 Committee. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. It has primarily to do with the fact that the uh, the, the UN membership is very jealous um, about a UN Security Council Committee with a limited mandate exceeding its mandate and overreaching its mandate. So, they, the 1540 people, have been waiting for initiatives to come forward, not just from the NSG but from the other multilateral arrangements. They've been very slow, in fact, in coming. And and uh, we thought, in discussing this with the group, that you know this would be one very you know fruitful possibility uh, to move forward. Particularly, that's the, that's the case because the NSG does set for itself the mission of universalizing its guidelines, and, and this is really, in, in our view, an opportunity for the NSG to do that. The, the, the 1540 Committee is, is very willing and ready to cooperate with the group to, to work together to establish the NSG's guidelines as the basis for nuclear export controls in all 197 UN states. Um beyond that, there are a couple of other areas that uh, where cooperation uh, could happen. Uh, the 1540 Group has done some stellar work in the area of trade financing, and that's an area that the NSG will be deeply interested in, uh, particularly in, in coming years as brokerage activities continue. Um, there is an, uh, a developing database in the Committee of Export Control Information and and. and, and Information on how export control systems work in all 179 countries. Um, it should be pointed out that within the NSG itself, there's very little of that information, even among the member states, because they have been not very willing to share that information in detail with the other members of the NSG, let alone um, the UN membership. And here's a case where the NSG, where the 1540 group has a mandate to do just this. So there's another area where they could uh, cooperate. Um, and then, you know, these other areas, uh, identification of deficits in the regime, um, outreach activities to provide UN members effective practices in this area, um, and then again, as I said, the adoption of the NSG standard by the member states in the, in the UN. Um, we moved on in the second day to a discussion of enforcement. Um, we had a very... <coughs> in-depth briefing from uh, export control enforcers in the NSG group at the meeting, and they recommended uh, an intensification of the participation of national enforcement bodies during the review of the lists that's ongoing, as I mentioned. Um, They also strongly suggested that the NSG introduce a peer review process. There is no peer review process in the NSG. Nobody knows how good Uh, their their export control process in that group is. Um, No member state has volunteered to do a peer review. Um, In a lot of these mechanisms, there is a reluctance to mandate a peer review. What we suggested is that, you know, a few member states may on themselves volunteer to do a peer review, uh, start a process by which a peer review uh, could uh, go forward, and then over a period of years perhaps normalize a peer review process. Um, Another thing they could do is they could do a survey. Um, the NSG could have member states survey uh, perhaps 5% of their listed trade, drill into 5% of that trade and find out if it's effective and find out if there are things that aren't effective, why not, and share that information with a the group. There's very little of this kind of you know, uh, drilling and probing going on in the NSG. Um, and then, again, you know, there are, there are things going on in parallel with the NSG, PSI, for example, and some other innovative export control activities on the part of the EU, you know, which uh, involve data-intensive data sharing among the members of, of you know, of those those uh, activities, that could be helpful for the NSG because data sharing has been a problem. There's a number of member states that sh- routinely share a lot of data, and there's another member group of member states that hardly share any data. So, you know, they have to get into that. And then finally. Uh, the last area that we discussed was the area of transparency and outreach, which um, really resonated with the Netherlands chairman. Uh, the Netherlands is very, seems to be very deeply committed to the issue of transparency and outreach and are moving forward by sponsoring a working paper, which is now uh, being prepared by the group, which you know, by the end of the year, I take it, will be ready for dissemination. But in the meeting that we had in Brussels, we suggested a number of things they could do. They they, they should review the denial sharing practices of all the multilateral arrangements because denials are a very political animal. Um, they're not well defined. There's cases where countries, instead of denying, you know, form, formally denying trade and reporting a denial to the group, they intervene with their intelligence agencies, block a transaction before it becomes an official formal export uh, license request, under those terms it's not considered a denial and that sensitive information is then denied to the group. So, you know, there, there has to be a discussion about denial. Um, there's a discussion ongoing as to whether or not denial information should be shared with the IEA. Some states in the group think it should. Other states are reluctant because of the multilateral nature of the agency. Um, we also proposed that the website of the NSG, which you can find um, when you open up your, your laptop, uh, is is very out of date. There's a lot of out of date information in there. Um, we proposed that it should be basically rethought. They could hire a consultant to use it as an outreach tool. There could be a lot of very useful export control information on that website that would be publicly available to the industry states. All they have to do is you know, provide a denial um, you know, on the site that says that they're not responsible for the content, but the content could be you know, of great interest to, to anyone in this area. Um, there also has to be a greater industry outreach. We were shocked to find that in the area of dual-use trade, which is the area which is going to be growing fastest in the next 10 years... Most of the people who are involved in that trade have no idea what the NRC does. They're they they're not sensitized about proliferation dangers. They don't do any threat assessments, um, and that you know is looks like you know potential accident ready to happen. So there's another area that we suggested, and then you know finally, uh, the last point is that we recommended that the group members routinely report to each other on their own export control systems. So far, there is no reporting requirement, and there's very little information in that area coming across. So that basically summarized most of what we did during the meeting. And I'll leave it at that. And then we can open the floor for discussion. Thank you.
1: Okay, thank you, um, Mark. And and all of that's fleshed out in, uh, in the report. Um, let me uh, now open it up for discussion. Uh, if you want to ask a question, uh, Then, when I call on you, identify yourself, that would be uh, preferable. Here's the in the front. It's always the first. Thank
3: you. Thank you very much, Raghubir Goyal, India Globe and Asia today. My quick question is that uh, what is the future of U.S.-India civil nuclear agreement, which uh, was earlier uh, opposed by Australia, but after President Obama's meeting with the Australian Prime Minister and with the Prime Minister of India? And I think they said they're going ahead with uh, India. Um, and finally also, do you think that this uh, outdated or new technology might go in the wrong hands of terrorism because of some of the rogue nations? And uh, if the AQ Khan issue ever came up during the meeting or is shop is still open or closed? Thank you.
2: Well, the Indian deal is... is- You know, it was in process. Uh, You know, it's now three years behind us. Um, The question in our minds, looking out, looking in from the outside, is is the glass half full or half empty? Um, You know, we've seen India work very hard to make sure it gets access to uranium. Um, They appear to be doing that. Um, In the minds of a lot of people, that was one of its primary nuclear objectives. In the areas where the supplier states were primarily interested in, in opening a nuclear trade with India, namely the... Export of reactors. There's been very little proce- uh, uh, progress, and, and I don't. So far, I don't see any any progress on that front whatsoever. The, the, there's still uh, major major contentious issues having to do with the liability uh, situation. So, uh, one of the, you know, you know, the, the proponents who wanted to see the Indian deal happen. One of the things they argued was that this was going to open up, you know, a brave new world in Indian India's nuclear. Uh, Civilian nuclear program, and so far that isn't happening. Um, George, Church, did you want to add anything to that? Um, now, on the issue of terrorism and AQ Khan, I mean, you know, the, the Khan, as I met Khan network is that was one of the shocks to the system. You know, that puts the NSG where it is right now. The, the network, you know, the, the the top of the network, you know, that you know, if you will, the 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 people that were identified, you know, the most egregious proliferators of, of these items, to these programs, you know, since the 1980s and as late as 2003, um, maybe maybe a, two dozen of those, of those perpetrators have been put out of business. But as we know, the technology and the know-how in this area is fungible, and we have a reason to believe that, uh, you know, nuclear information, which is in the form of technology blueprints, CDs, whatever, um, some of the most egregious transactions of the con network did not involve equipment, but involved technology. And, and we can only assume that this technology in the form of blueprints or CDs is, is out there. Um, I, you know, when I asked Western officials about this, uh, this issue, was, what, is the network shut down, you know, the, the answer is no. Uh, there, are, there are procurement agents out there who are affiliated with the network over many years who are still at large. And there's no reason to believe that they're not operating. If you look at the transactions that resulted in, for example, a decision by by uh, Israel to bomb uh, that installation in Syria, um, I'm told that the intelligence uh, f- findings, you know, behind that uh, pointed to a very, very widespread effort by Syria to disguise procurement worldwide to permit. A uh, plutonium production reactor to be built uh, during the period after Con was put out of business.
1: Other questions?
0: Yes, sir. Yes, hi, Jim Ostroff with Platts Nuclear, and I'd appreciate if you could just elaborate a bit on the outreach to industry, what the situation is today why that may pose problems or hazards, and why it may be of more concern in the next 5, 10, and 20 years? Good question. Yeah.
2: Well, um, that question has probably several answers. One of them is there can be little doubt that the established suppliers that we know of today, you know, the, the General Electrics, the Arivas, Westinghouse, Hitachi, you know, these are companies that are highly aware of, of uh, the danger of proliferation of their of their technology. Um, they are already in an NSG process. They've been doing export control um, for you know decades, and and you know they have armies of of personnel that are working on this. At Arriva, at during the meeting we had in Brussels, we were given some data on Arriva's, um growing army of of personnel who are involved in this area and Arriva's uh, staff in the area of of compliance and export controls uh, for nuclear exports, that staff has doubled in 10 years. So, you know, in this area we're, in a way, kind of less concerned. Um, The Carnegie Endowment, my colleagues George Perkovich and others have have worked on a code of conduct, which uh, includes uh, some... Uh, stipulations in this area, and and these, you know, these, these companies are on board. They, they 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 want to be good citizens in this in this area, and, and, and they're 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 in the loop. The problem is, as I mentioned before, primarily in the dual use area, which which are basically a huge swath of, of small to medium sized companies, mostly that produce equipment which can be used in nuclear programs. Most of those people are outside the system. Um, They don't know anything about the NSG. They're not part of the export control world. And then the other part of the equation um, is what happens when new nuclear suppliers emerge. They will be developing their own technologies. They will be uh, getting technologies for license from their partners in advanced nuclear programs. And there we're looking at a potential number of 15 to 20 countries over the next 15 years who – could emerge as nuclear equipment suppliers. And this is the reason why the, the NSG has an outreach program and is going to have to intensify that program to make sure that those people are brought into the system. And that is also the reason why this issue that I mentioned with Pakistan is on the agenda, because, as I said, the NSG, its, a, its mission is not limited to states in, in the NPT. I mean, it's, it's, it's most concerned right now about a, a couple of countries – that have nuclear weapons, they have nuclear fuel cycle capabilities, they have nuclear manufacturing capabilities, export procurement organizations. These countries are all outside of the NPT. So the the NSG has set the goal of capturing these countries and getting them in the system, which is the reason why uh, you know George I and Toby you know put this thought paper out there to the group because the group. Is looking for a way to get that threat inside of the group to 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 capture those countries and make sure that that they adhere to the guidelines.
1: Yes, sir. Uh, we've got two, so I'll take uh, you. Go ahead and ask your question, and then Dan, and then and then Mark will answer both. Because I just want to make sure we get all of them in in time. Oh, go, please.
3: Uh, Narayan Lakshman of the Hindu. Uh, my question pertains to what you've said in pages 30 and 31, talking about the uh, requirement for NPT membership before uh, the NSG will do any trade in ENR enrichment and reprocessing. Now, with the new regulations uh, issued earlier this year, um, my question is: How does the exception, the singular exception to India, get affected by this? Um, you know, and has there been any ENR trade so far? And if so, you know, what's the future of that? And secondly, on the flip side, how is the uh, China-Pakistan issue uh, going to be affected again in the context of ENR?
2: Hi, uh, yes. My name is Carl Lundgren from Jonah Speaks. I was wondering, what is the budget of the nuclear suppliers group, or is the main uh, budget activity basically outside the group, basically national governments contributing their share? Right. Uh, I'll answer that question first. I think that has a fairly simple answer. It's it's really the national governments that, 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 that contribute uh, and pay for um, their people to, to meet. Uh, there's an informal arrangement uh, where the government of Japan has... Uh, appropriated money to serve as a point of contact, organizing meetings, holding meetings in Vienna, and, and serving as a kind of informal secretariat. They have a staff uh, which are seconded from the Foreign Ministry to do that activity and that of course requires budgeting as well. But but primarily the budgeting comes from the Member States and there's no independent secretariat that has a budget to control. Um, the question uh, questions that were asked before regarding ENR. Um, you know, to my knowledge, since the since the um the guidelines were revised and the and the, and were published as an insert document by the agency um there haven't been any enr transfers in fact it, you know if you go back into the history before the guidelines were were revised there have been you know extremely few mm-hmm. enr transfers enr uh, was a sub was a, was an issue that was you know, was subject from from day one in the nsg to restraint and you know, the, the, the governments have, in fact, been very reluctant to, to transfer ENR. There's one kind of burning issue uh, on the ENR uh, plate right now, and that is how the guidelines are going to be interpreted. And my understanding uh, regarding India um, is that, you know, most of the governments that I know and I, I believe um, people in the chairmanship um have suggested in, in in interviews that have been published uh, that would appear that that it was clear to India from the beginning that NSG and NPT membership was going to be a con, a, you know a criterion for them to have to meet to get an enR that was clear to them at the time the exemption was made it was spelled out by you know, officials in the State Department uh, previous to the exception um, as far as China and Pakistan are concerned I, I don't see any ENR transfer taking place there, I think that would really be a red line that would, uh, you know, uh, prompt a a great deal of objection far beyond the issue of the power reactors. The transfer of the power reactors from China to Pakistan is not in the most limited sense a proliferation issue. Um, These are reactors that would be supplied under safeguards under any any, any event. it, that, if it were a fuel cycle facility or it was an ENR-related transfer, that would that would be completely different. Uh, if China were to transfer ENR to Pakistan uh, through its uh, nuclear cooperation agreement, um, I think the, you know, that would cause a, a serious crisis with very serious objections in the group. Okay, very quick
3: follow-up. Yeah. Um, after this process, the State Department did say that uh, it's going to stand by the exception made to India in the context of ENR. So what you're saying suggests that that statement is not valid. Well,
1: Mark's going to answer that, but I also, from another government that wasn't the U.S. government, also made clear what Mark just did, which is that when in, that, that India was informed that, notwithstanding the exemption, that the NSG was working on ENR guidelines prior to 2008 and would continue to work on them, and that what would be produced in that working on the ENR guidelines would apply to, to India. And the Indians were told that in advance consistently, which is what Mark said. Yeah, that's but what I understand. from a non US government person.
2: You have to maybe after the meeting. You can show me what it is, because I, my understanding is that the United States government has taken the position that for India to get EINR, it has to be a member of the NPT.
1: But the U.S. wasn't going to sell ENR to India in any case. So, so part of this is a sleight of hand. And it has been a discussion of this all along. India wants the rights to it. And <coughs> people saying, "Well, we wouldn't have approved it." in the first place and so we're not going to pronounce on whether you would have the right to do it or not because we wouldn't do it in any case so I, I, I don't I don't know. Uh, Dan Horner and then Ann right in front. So Dan maybe you can pass the microphone in front of you after you're done. We'll take those two and then the gentleman over here right by you. Zoe. Hi,
2: um, Dan Horner from Arms Control Today. Hi Mark and thank Hi. you. Um, I also wanted to ask about uh, China and Pakistan and talking to people about this. One of the um, rationales or um, thoughts I've heard is that in 2004, it actually wasn't clear what what was in, what was included and what wasn't, and the implication of that was that this the deal would go forward, but there would be some uh, 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 agreement with China uh, to be to be clear for the future, and also for any future countries when they join to be clear about what was in and what was out. I don't know if you had first of all, have you heard that that um, that approach discusses a way to, to resolve this. And secondly, is that factually correct from your understanding? Was there un, uncertainty at the time as to what was included and what wasn't as part of the grandfathering uh, for China? Um, no, I hadn't heard that before. I, you know, My understanding from member states who asked the question in 2004 is that they were told clearly by China that power reactors were not on the list. Um, what, what, there, what has happened, one of the things that has happened is that in 2006 – because of the painful experience that they went through with Russia over the fuel deal to Terpore and the reactor exports to KK, Um, the member states agreed by consensus that when a country invokes the grandfather principle, that the country has to come up with bona fides to demonstrate that, in fact, that particular transaction is grandfathered. And neither in the Russian cases, nor so far in the Chinese cases, is, is, are, are we there so far. And as I say, the Chinese assertions, if I'm correctly informed, that the China provided you know, information about this transfer back in 2004 to the IEA when it uh, provided an expanded declaration to the agency under the protocol, um, it doesn't get us there either because the agency can't cough that information up to the NSG. So we're, we're not there. Um, you know, one of the objections to the to the the, the criterion based approach that that George Toby and I have come up with that has been you know leveled at us over the last several months has been that this transaction won 't go forward that you know why don 't we just you know very strong strong minded non proliferators have told me you know mark, just ignore it you know you 're doing more damage to the regime than than if you make an issue of this and you know, I don't really think that's true. I I I, uh, I looked at this. Um, I don't know. Are if there's any if there's anybody here, are there any Illinoisians in the room? Um, um, you know, you, if you are, you you might recall that you know before there were before there were Lincoln Douglas debates, there was a prelude back in 1854 um, when Douglas advocated the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, which would open up slavery in Kansas territory. And during a debate that he had in Springfield, Illinois, um, Douglas said, well, Mr. Lincoln, I'm not really, I know you're concerned about slavery in Kansas, but you don't have to worry about it because if we pass this act, everybody would be happy, but they won't have slavery because the climate of Kansas is not really uh, good for slavery. Um slaves will not flourish in the Kansan climate. And Abe Lincoln said, um, you know, Judge Douglas, I think that's a lullaby. And and I think this is a lullaby. I think, you know, we can't assume that China is not going to export those reactors. As I said, I was in Pakistan and I learned about the preparations that Pakistan is making for this transaction. And then I went to China. And I got an earful from people from the component makers that are setting up the heavy equipment to be exported. So this is a transaction that, in another context, uh, we discussed in, in the report uh, the, that, that we circulated back in the spring, that this is this is a transaction that has many motivations, including strategic ones for China, that don't really have a lot to do necessarily with commercial motivations, and for that reason – um, it's. It, I think it would be a mistake to assume that this transaction wouldn't go forward. You know, if we, you know, if we just ignored it, and I, I, I really think, you know, and I, and many of the people that attended the meeting that we had in Brussels, real, almost without exception, expressed the view that if the NSG doesn't solve this problem with China and Pakistan, they're going to have a serious credibility deficit. They're going to work on, so they are. You know, they really are a notice that they have to—they have to come up with an answer to this. Yeah. Um
1: Thank you, Anne Penketh from Basic British American Security Information Council. Mark, I was very struck by your description of how the how the NSG actually operates in terms of the chairmanship, the membership, the consensus rule, and things like that. Are there any? It sounds like it's ripe for reform, but are there any chances of that?
2: Well, you know that's. That's kind of where we're headed, but the question is, um, will the NSG grab, you know, uh, the what is it? Grab the horse by the tail, um, um, and, or whatever, and, and 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 whatever. What what is it? I, I can't. I don't, I, don't I, I don't know. You know, take get get moving on this and actually think about this. The, the impression I had and from the meeting was that. The membership, the people that attend NSG meetings, the the, the trade officials, um, many of them have been in this field for many years. It's very specific and, and it's very wonky. You you really have to know a whole lot of stuff about how nuclear export controls work. And you know, the longer you're in that business, the more valuable you are to your government. So many of these people have been in there for a long time, and you know, it's possible that that longevity. Uh, discourages, you know, thinking outside of the box about moving forward. It's, it, I did have that impression. Uh, so one of the questions that I have is, to whether, is whether the NSG is going to be left to its own devices where, you know, the trade bureaucrats and, and, and experts that are called in from national laboratories to confer and consult, if these people are just left to, you know, doing business as usual – under you know, different conditions, as we outlined here, that won't be enough, that you know, national governments at a very senior level are going to have to intervene and think hard about this. And that's what we did. We, we did in the Brussels meeting, we had, you know, I was very impressed. We had, you know, a, a lot of ambassadors at that meeting. We had people at very level, heads of uh, arms control and disarmament, not proliferation uh, departments and in, in, in government ministries who attended it and came thousands of miles to attend this meeting. And, and they they saw that as an opportunity to to take a look at the organization that they're sending you know middle-level uh, diplomats to in parts of the world and take a look at it from above and I think you know that's what Pete de Klerk, the, the the Dutch NSG chairman had involved had, had in mind he wanted a meeting where people would kind of look at the organization you know from 30,000 30, feet and think about what's going to happen in the future and I don't think they're quite They've quite scored the circle yet about reforming the organization. There's still a lot of resistance. A few years ago, a number of people, Mohamed Alberti, a number of trade experts here in town, favored the, uh, a negotiation for a global export control regime that would basically in- in- encompass all technologies. So in other words, you'd be talking about replacing you know, Wassenaar, MTCR, um, you know, NSG Australia group with something which would be an international treaty and therefore be binding and be also have credibility and would not engender this, this acerbic debate about, you know, cartel building and, and denial of trade. That is one way to go. And some people still want to do this. But when I was at the NSG meeting, at the NSG meeting that we held, that, that seemed still boring. No one in the group seemed very interested in going that direction. Um, so, if we do move there, I, I'm, I'm not confident that the, the group members themselves would, would take the initiative.
0: Hello, I'm Gene By with uh, the Government Accountability Office. Uh, back in the spring, we had the Carnegie Conference, and we had somebody from Leipold Vacuum or whatever they are now talking about how industry and I believe it was intel groups within countries needed to work together more closely to stop proliferation uh, sales before they ever reached the point of going in for a license. Now, the question I didn't ask then, but I'm going to ask now, is if you do that, you get rid of the possibility of a denial of a license entirely and the the transaction never gets reported right. to the NSG and the relatively ineffective denial reporting process of all of the multilateral export control regimes gets weakened even farther. Now, it sounded like, the NSG might be thinking about trying to strengthen the denial reporting process. How does how does Carnegie sort of square where these two tangents come together, or is there any thought of you know trying to square that?
2: I'm, could you repeat what you said in the beginning about the the first? I mean, I, I discussed the problem here where countries would. Uh, avoid a denial reporting requirement or obligation by, you know...
0: Uh, uh, George by, probably oh, remembers the person better than I do. Yeah.
2: yeah,
1: although I'm forgetting his name, but I'm remembering vividly the session. And, it, and, and and what he was talking about, the, the leader of the company was talking about, they get inquiries. So it's way before a request for a license right. or whatever. They get inquiries. Right. They have a database uh, they can look at it and 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 say, "Wait, that's a shady right. front company," and just say, "We're not interested." Then they can pass, they, they can do that. Number one. Number two, they can then pass the fax or whatever the email that was the inquiry to governments and say, "You might want to be know know that these guys are out there trawling around looking right. for stuff." Still not a denial, which is kind of going to your question. So it was then suggested that it might be beneficial to put together kind of a database or to do some more coordination by states to interact with industry to make it easier and more normative for companies to, to pass along when they get these kinds of, of dubious queries, but also to pass information back to the companies saying, you know, these are dubious actors out there if you're getting queries from them, none of which would get up to the point of the denial process, which is where the NSG and where you were were, were coming. Is that well, there.
2: Yeah, that's the same. That's just another variation of the theme that I mentioned before. That's that's what I thought you meant. Yeah, uh, that requires a uh, – the NSG parties, you know, thinking about making more precise what the requirement for denial is, and, you know, that that's a problem because it's a consensus decision. And, you know, I don't have to mention the countries in the group that are normally least willing to <laughs> supply this information. So, you know, you're going to get, you know, you're very likely you're going to get, you know, the Chinese, the Russians, um, um, you know, perhaps others. I mean, I, in the past, there's been a number of, of countries in Europe uh, that were likewise unwilling to, to, to do that. Uh, some surprising ones in Europe that you know normally uh, are very uh, very zealous about uh, conformance with the export control uh, laws, but it would require all the states to agree. And, and they, but they have to they have to do this. I mean, one of the things that we you'll see in the report, you know, we one of the one of the the um, recommendations that came out of the meeting was that the, the chairman. Should convene a working group on denial, where they break it down and, and have a discussion moving forward over a period of maybe one to two years to come up with a a working definition of what denial means. Um, but again, we're at we're, we're trying to square the circle here because the the, the consensus rule of the group gives any state the obligation or the the the, opp- the opportunity to to deny consensus, and and this is just a. An example of the bigger problem, which we pointed to during this discussion, of moving from an NSG that has 46 members, most of whom are advanced nuclear countries, to a future in 2020 of maybe 60, 65, 70 members, where 10 of them are non-developed countries that have, you know, other diplomatic agendas and issues with the West, where there's, you know, the possibility that we could develop you know, political blocks within the NSG like they exist in United Nations organizations. I mean, one of the things that that the membership was very worried about during the negotiation of the ENR guidelines, and and, and the reason they wanted to handle that negotiation very, very gingerly, is because they were concerned that by the simple reiteration of talking points by delegations meeting up, to discuss how to go forward on the guidance for ENR, that they would in effect form you know a group that said, yeah, we want to have more controls on ENR, and then we're going to have, you know, setting up essentially a a quasi-NAM group in the in the NSG that says, no, no no more controls on ENR. And and there were a couple of countries in in the group that were for quite a number uh, of years were were expressing strong reservations about greater controls in this area. And you know the people that were guiding that negotiation were very, very nervous that that could get out of control and end up in a block-like stalemate where, in the end, we had two groups that could not agree. So you know it's a very sensitive matter, and they have to move forward with a certain amount of care.
0: Um,
1: we've come to the appointed hour of our end here, and I, but but I want to reiterate that last point Mark was making, which is as the you know, as, as membership may expand or as dynamics change, you run into a tension where an organization that was created to perform a function, a nonproliferation function, with the presumption that you'd want to strengthen it over time as you needed to update it, runs into the possibility now of of members or potential members actually having the purpose of weakening the controls. And so what used to be a unified kind of purpose at least, and you could differ on the details, you may get, there's a risk of having a fundamental kind of clash in purposes in the membership, uh, but also with consensus rules. Um, and so that, that has big, uh, big implications. Let me thank all of you for your patience and your great uh, attention and questions, and then ask you to join me in thanking Mark uh, for this report, which I hope uh, you'll have the time and occasion to read. Thanks very much.